Hi guys, welcome back to the True Crime Sisters podcast and thank you so much for joining us. You may notice in this episode some differences between myself and Bill's voices. That is because we are both recording remotely, so I'm recording at my house, Bill's recording at her house. um, Bill's actually quite sick at the moment, so we actually just haven't been able to get together. So we're hoping you can excuse us if um, it sounds a bit odd, but we're doing our best to get an episode out there, so hopefully you guys can appreciate that. As we always do, we're going to thank a few of our Patreon supporters before we start. So a big thank you to Ali, Madison, Katie, Shari, Yana or Jana, Rachel, Talu, Erica, Jen, Jamie and Bonnie. Thanks guys for your support. We really do appreciate it. And just so you know, we are very, very behind with thanking our Patreons. So if you still haven't heard your name, we do appreciate your patience. We'll get through them eventually. I also just wanted to do a quick shout out to a new podcast that has been started by one of our listeners. It's called The Evidence Locker. So if you need a true crime fix, head over and check them out. With that out of the way, I'll pass you over to Bill to get us started on this week's case. Thanks, Harry. This week we will be discussing a case that has not had formal closure, but does have a primary suspect. Rachel Joy Antonio was a young teenage girl with a lot of promise when she disappeared in Bowen, Queensland. Rachel was the fourth child for Ian and Cheryl Antonio and enjoyed a largely normal and happy childhood. She was known to be talented at sports and enjoyed participating in her extracurricular activities, including surf lifesaving and air cadets. The air cadets are a youth organisation that teaches young people skills such as flying, adventure training, safety training, navigation and gliding, and this was her favourite activity. She planned to pursue a career in the Defence Force when she finished her high school education at Bowen State High School. She was a quiet girl at school, but her friends also described her as having a mischievous streak, as she loved to play practical jokes and have a laugh. Her commitments to her out-of-school activities demonstrated her discipline, dedication and drive to achieve her goals. Rachel had a very close bond with her family, in particular her mother. The Antonios were a loving and warm family. Like most teenagers, Rachel kept some of her life experiences private and detailed a lot of them in her personal diary. According to Rachel's diary and a few of her friends who she had told, she was dating an older man from her surf lifesaving club named Robert Hitch. Rachel had kept a comprehensive account of their relationship by opening up in her diary, which she obviously would not have intended for anyone to see. There was a significant age difference between the couple, with Rachel being 15 years old when their relationship began, and Robert Hitch being 24 years of age when their relationship began. Over time, their relationship did become sexual in nature, as detailed in Rachel's diary. In Australia, the age of consent is 16, meaning that nobody aged 15 or younger is legally allowed to consent to sexual activity. With the age gap taken into account, sexual intercourse between Rachel Antonio and Robert Hitch is legally considered statutory rape regardless of anything else. 
Rachel and Robert appeared to have a routine boyfriend-girlfriend relationship. However, the relationship was also kept relatively secret due to the age difference. On the afternoon of the 25th of April, 1998, Rachel asked her mother, Cheryl, whether she could go to the movies that night, and her mother agreed. At 6pm, Cheryl drove Rachel to the cinemas. It was still an hour until the movie, Goodwill Hunting, was due to start. Cheryl was having headlight issues with the car and didn't want to take it out after it got dark. Rachel told Cheryl she would either catch a taxi home or arrange a lift with someone she knew. However, panic set in for Rachel's family when she didn't arrive home that night. You can only imagine the panic Ian and Cheryl would have felt as it got later and later and their teenage daughter didn't arrive home. It didn't take long for a suspect to come to the forefront of Rachel's disappearance. During police's investigation, they uncovered her handwritten diary, placed in a spot that was clearly intended to be secret. Police could find no indication that Rachel was planning on running away or leaving by her own accord. So fears of foul play began to arise and the focus landed on the most prominent person in Rachel's world at the time. Robert Hitch. When police questioned Robert Hitch, he repeatedly denied that he had even been dating Rachel and said that the two were just friends and colleagues at Surf Life Saving, but evidence indicated otherwise. Rachel's diary covered a substantial period of time and events that would be significant in the life of a teenage girl. Her friends and family could independently verify the events that Rachel had written about her diary was not a document that had been thrown together quickly to make Robert Hitch look bad. The events in her diary were her life and experiences. Rachel had also written a number of letters to her friend who was living in Victoria, Alex Ginger, about the blossoming relationship between herself and Robert Hitch. The main issue in the investigations of Robert Hitch's involvement in the disappearance of Rachel Antonio is that it became a case of he said, she said. While they hadn't openly behaved like girlfriend and boyfriend, there had been many people who had suspicions of an inappropriate relationship between the two. At one point, Robert had taken Rachel along with one of his friends, Mr Andrew Phillips, to a lookout on the south-east side of Bowen, called Flagstaff Hill. Andrew Phillips had been in the car while Robert and Rachel got out and stood together. Andrew saw Robert place his right hand Andrew saw Robert place his right hand into the jeans pocket on Rachel's pants over her bottom and keep it there for a number of minutes. When Robert noticed Andrew watching the pair, he quickly removed his hands from Rachel's pocket, and Andrew got the impression that they were definitely more than friends. Due to the age difference, Andrew was very concerned by the way Rachel and Robert were acting, and he told Robert's father, Paul Hitch, what he had seen. He also told a senior member of the Bowen Surf Lifesaving Club, Peter Clout, who knew Rachel's parents. Robert's father, Paul, discouraged him from any relationship that might be happening between his son and the 15-year-old Rachel. When this incident was brought up to Robert Hitch, 
He initially denied that he had been to Flagstaff Hill with Rachel at all, but later changed his story to suggest that he may have been there, but that he could not recall it. When the case went to inquest later, the coroner could find no reason for Mr. Andrew Phillips to invent this story. Robert Hitch also had some co-workers who were prepared to say at inquest that he and Rachel had been seen together at the hotel in which they worked, and that the two appeared to be a couple. Mr. Brennan Reed stated that he had seen Hitch talking to a young girl in Hitch's car, who he was able to confirm was Rachel. He also stated that when Hitch returned to the hotel, he asked, Is that your woman? To which Hitch replied, Yeah, sort of seeing her. Hitch also had a conversation with another co-worker named Miss Nicole Andrea Stone. She recalled pointing out a young girl walking past the hotel, stating that Hitch might be interested in her, to which Hitch replied that he already had a girl at the Surf Lifesaving Club, a 16-year-old girl. There were also members of the Surf Lifesaving Club who had their suspicions about the nature of Hitch and Rachel's relationship. They often noticed that Hitch and Rachel were seen walking off together for an unexplained reason before reappearing. As a result of this, rumours began to circulate through the Surf Lifesaving Club. Hitch's friend, Mr John Paul Robson, was so concerned to hear that Hitch was seeing a 15-year-old girl that he warned him to be careful. Hitch was also warned by his own sister and father not to get involved with Rachel, although they would later say they didn't recall this. In Rachel's diary, she detailed going to the Hitch family home in Rose Bay when most of his family were out. In her diary, she spoke about being in his room watching Wayne's World, which Robert Hitch denied happened. However, Robert's younger brother Scott stated that Rachel had been at their house watching a movie in the bedroom that they shared. Some time into their relationship, Robert Hitch attended a surf life-saving event in New South Wales. While there, he reportedly had an affair with a woman who he ended up having feelings for. Initially, he didn't tell Rachel about this hookup, but he did tell some friends from the Surf Life Saving Club. Word got through the grapevine to Rachel and she found out that Robert had met a girl interstate and that she was apparently pregnant. If you think back to what it was like to be 15 and having your first relationships, emotions are high, so you can imagine how devastated Rachel would have been to hear about the affair. After learning about the possible pregnancy of Hitch's love interest, Rachel decided to get some revenge of her own. She decided she was going to confront Hitch with a false pregnancy in order to pressure him into choosing between her and the other girl. This behaviour is indicative of Rachel's age and level of immaturity and naivety. Her school friends, who she discussed it with, confirmed this plan which went as far as using a pregnant woman's urine to achieve a positive test result. Reportedly, at Hitch's request, Rachel had taken two pregnancy tests, one in a Queen Beach toilet block and the other at the Bowen Pool, where Hitch often worked. Reportedly, she didn't do the test correctly the first time and got a negative result. But the second time, using the pregnant woman's urine, 
she achieved a positive result. There was also a day when Rachel was reportedly absent from school and she told her friends she was going to Townsville to have her fake pregnancy terminated. The same day, Hitch withdrew $300 from his bank account, which was a sizable proportion of what he had in his account. Despite this, there was no record of Rachel attending any of the clinics in Townsville. Surely if she had have attended, it wouldn't have taken the physicians and nurses at the clinic long to realise she was not really pregnant. Robert Hitch denied that this occurred. Leading up to the 25th of April, 1998, the day that Rachel disappeared, Rachel's diary detailed her anticipation that she was going to confess to Hitch that she was faking her pregnancy. Emotions would have already been high, and he may well have been feeling negatively towards Rachel for what he perceived as throwing his life into turmoil especially as he had moved on with a new girlfriend, Miss Susan Cummins. So it's safe to say things between Rachel and Robert Hitch would have been tense at this time. Now we will go through what we know about what happened on Saturday the 25th of April 1998, which was also Anzac Day. Rachel attended an Anzac Day service that morning with her Air Cadets group and she participated in the memorial service. After that, she made her way home, where she changed from her air cadet's uniform into normal clothing. At 11am, Rachel went to a friend's house with the intention of visiting, but when she knocked on the door, there was no response. She was seen at 11.30am by a woman she had known for years, Mrs Terry Greenoff, in the main street of Bowen, at 12.30pm, Rachel went to the Bowen swimming pool where she had paid her admission fee and entered. Robert Hitch worked at the Bowen pool as a lifeguard and it is commonly assumed Rachel may have gone to the pool looking for him. The pool manager, Sid Pate, would later recall that Rachel didn't appear to have bought her swimming gear or a towel. She stayed for approximately half an hour before she left with dry hair. Sid saw her on her way out and asked her, didn't anyone else turn up, assuming that she was there to meet friends, to which she replied no. Sid watched as she left the pool and turned left outside the entrance. It is assumed that Rachel then made her way home. At approximately 4pm that day, Rachel asked her mother Cheryl if she could go to the movies that night and Cheryl agreed that that would be fine. Cheryl then left the home to run some errands. That afternoon, three phone calls of interest were made. At 4.51pm, a phone call was made from the Bowen Pool to the Antonio residence. The call duration was zero seconds which indicated that the call was hung up before anyone could answer. 13 seconds later, a phone call was made from the Bowen Pool to the Hitch residence, and this phone call had a duration of 38 seconds. At 5.08pm, 17 minutes later, a phone call was made from the Hitch residence to the Antonio residence. This call went for 86 seconds. After Rachel disappeared, these calls, which were made quickly one after the other, and then again quickly from the Hitch household, 
did not appear to be a coincidence. It was believed that because the first two calls from Bowen Poole were made from the office, logically they could only have been made by either Sid Pate, the pool manager, Robert Hitch, who worked there and was allowed access to the office, Rachel, who was at the pool that day, or a random member of the public. Sid Pate was adamant that it wasn't him that made the calls, and he denied that any member of the public had used the phone. Hitch said that he was at home when the phone call was made, but that Pate called him asking if he could cover the closing shift that night. Pate suggested that someone might have come into the office area without his consent, and the coroner would later conclude that it was likely that Pate knew who made the call but didn't want to say anything. Pate making the calls didn't really fit in with the evidence because he had no reason to try and call the Antonio household. The coroner concluded that it was likely that when Rachel's mother left to run errands, she walked to the pool and called her own number before terminating that call and ringing the Hitch household. She would likely have been doing this to suggest that they meet. Hitch was supposed to be helping out with his younger brother Scott's 18th birthday party that night and let Rachel know this. It is assumed that Rachel then walked home where at 5.08pm Hitch called her telling her that he would meet her at 7pm at Queen's Beach. Because he made this call, he would later say that he called to let her know that she had patrol with the Surf Lifesaving Club the next morning. Now, Rachel was a very punctual person, so there was actually no need for him to call to remind her of this, as she had never been late to patrol before. So Cheryl Antonio dropped Rachel off at the movies an hour early at 6pm, and she wandered down to the Queen's Beach foreshore where she was seen by a number of witnesses. She came across two Jehovah's Witnesses, who she had a chat with and told she was waiting for her boyfriend. Two men on their way home from the local bowls club also saw her, and this was approximately just before 7pm. She never bought a ticket to the movies. Mr Ben DeLuca, who owned the cinema and knew Rachel and her family well, confirmed this. After this, there are no more known sightings of Rachel, and there were no signs of a struggle or screams in the area. Rachel's parents were concerned when she didn't arrive home that night and went to the police the next morning. It wasn't long before the police discovered her diary and realised they needed to figure out what Robert Hitch's movements were on the 25th of April, 1998. It was confirmed that prior to 7pm, Robert was at his family home helping to set up his brother Scott's 18th birthday. Just before 7pm, Robert's mum asked him to go to the store to get some ice and hire a movie for the younger kids that were attending the party. So obviously this would match up with the time that he would have had to leave to meet Rachel at Queen's Beach, if this was his intention, as the coroner would later find. Hitch said that he drove the most direct route to the video shop, but that his Ford car broke down on the way. He said that his engine just stopped unexpectedly and he cruised off to the side of the road. He checked under the bonnet and played around with the wires and leads, reportedly trying to find the fuel filter in an attempt to get the car started again. He said he then tried to restart the car and it did start again, so he continued on. He said he had taken off his shirt 
at, it, at this point because it was covered with grease. He said that he went into the video store to the kids section and grabbed a movie, spending approximately five minutes in the store. He said that on his way home from the video shop, the car broke down again, so he did the same thing under the bonnet and it started up again. According to witnesses, Hitch returned home at approximately 7.45pm, not wearing a shirt and appeared somewhat agitated. He had the video, but not the ice cream that his mum had asked for. He told people at the party that his car had broken down and his good shirt had become covered in grease. This 45 plus minutes that he was gone was the only time his whereabouts couldn't be fully verified and coincides with the time that Rachel would have been at the beach, in her words, waiting for her boyfriend. Hitch initially told police that on the way into town, he was stopped for approximately five or six minutes, and on the way back approximately ten minutes. Being that he was only in the video store for a few minutes, and records show that he borrowed the movie at 7.39pm, This leaves 25 to 30 minutes or so unaccounted for. In future statements to police by Mr Hitch, he increased the time he was broken down on the side of the road from 5 minutes right up to 30 minutes. Police seized Hitch's car to investigate it for faults, but were unable to replicate the engine problems that Robert had encountered. Despite this, Senior Sergeant Gary Wright of the Police Transport Section reported that there were known similar issues with Ford Fairmonts, so it was a possibility that the car had broken down. Despite that, the timeline that Hitch gave police did not add up, and they didn't feel as though he was being truthful. Between these inconsistencies and Hitch's denials about his relationship with Rachel, his credibility was being called into question immediately. In addition, police cadaver dogs detected the scent of a deceased human being at King's Beach, which was a short drive from Queen's Beach in Bowen. He had the motive, and emotions would have been running high that night. Rachel had been planning to confess that she was faking a pregnancy with him, which it is likely that he would have been extremely angry about. And it seems that due to the inconsistencies in his timeline, he had the opportunity to hurt Rachel while he was away from his brother's party. That 30 minutes of time unaccounted for was sufficient for Hitch to get to Queen's Beach, pick Rachel up and take her to King's Beach. From there, in a later coroner's inquest, it was determined that there was an altercation as emotions ran high. Rachel was fatally wounded either intentionally or unintentionally. Rachel was a petite 5 foot 3 to Hitch's tall athletic 6 foot 5 structure and it wouldn't be hard for him to hurt her, whether intended or not. And following this, Hitch returned to the party. Police conducted an extensive search of King's Beach, but unfortunately found nothing. Another podcast, Searching for Rachel Antonio, asked Rachel's dad Ian what he thought had happened to Rachel if she hadn't been buried in a shallow grave on King's Beach. He believed that she may have been put into an industrial bin as there were so many in the area. And we do highly recommend that you listen to the Searching for Rachel Antonio podcast if you're interested in this case because they cover a lot of details that we don't have time to delve into in this episode. 
King's Beach was a place that Rachel and Robert spent a lot of private time together, as detailed in Rachel's diary, so it would be unsurprising if this was where they went. The coroner determined that following a fight, Rachel may have been left on the beach fatally wounded or deceased until her killer could come back to conceal her death. Police seized a pair of Reef brand sandals that Hitch had been wearing on the night of Rachel's disappearance, and it was found that there were droplets of blood on them that belonged to Rachel. Hitch explained this away by stating that Rachel had once injured herself at surf life-saving and bled on him, but nobody else at the club could recall an event where this would have happened. What it did mean was that at some point bleeding Rachel was in the vicinity of Robert Hitch, and that this could have happened on the night that she disappeared. A number of guests at Hitch's brother's Scott's party recalled that Hitch was agitated and appeared nervous when he returned home from the video shop. So one of the questions that it would make sense to ask is, what evidence is there that Rachel was going to confront Hitch about her false pregnancy that night? She mentioned this to two people prior to the 25th. On the 22nd of April, 1998, Rachel was walking home when she encountered a man she knew in passing named Mr Rodney Taylor. In her naive and trusting nature, she opened up to him, telling him that she had falsely told her boyfriend she was pregnant. She said, I'm meeting my boyfriend this weekend. We're going to sort it out then. He reported this encounter to police as soon as he heard that she was missing. Even more specifically, Rachel told a good friend Rebecca on the school bus, quote, She was going to meet Robert on the beach on the Saturday night and have a talk. She told me she was going to tell her mum she was going to the movies, but then she would meet Robert at the beach. She said she couldn't see him on Friday, so she was going to see him on Saturday. She told me she had spoken to Robert on Tuesday or Wednesday and that she was upset with him and when he wanted to see her on Thursday or Friday, she said she couldn't, and she would see him on Saturday night. I was not there when this happened, but Rachel told me about the talk she had had with Robert. So from the evidence available, it's easy to see why the coroner concluded at inquest that Rachel was definitely planning on meeting up with Robert Hitch on Saturday the 25th of April 1998 to confess that her pregnancy was fake. The problem came when Hitch was taken to trial. Rachel's diary, which contained detail and personal thoughts and experiences, was not permitted as evidence. However, in the inquest, the diary was not restricted. In 1999, Hitch was prosecuted for the murder of Rachel Joy Antonio and was convicted of her manslaughter. He was sentenced to nine years in prison. In June 2001... This was overturned and Mr Hitch was acquitted after being retried at the Townsville Supreme Court. The inquest into Rachel's death was completed in 2016 and the coroner found that it was probable that Rachel was killed by Mr Robert Hitch on the night of the 25th of April 1998. Unfortunately, due to double jeopardy laws in Australia, Hitch cannot be retried unless new and compelling evidence against him is uncovered. This year, Hitch lost an appeal to have his name removed from the coroner's report, and that's why we are allowed to name him. It is public knowledge. In the podcast Searching for Rachel Antonio, 
it was revealed that Rachel was not the first underage woman that Robert Hitch had dated. Juanita Orton had met Robert Hitch when she was 16 years old and attending Bowen High School, and they began to have sex. He was 19 years old. Their relationship was similar to Robert's relationship with Rachel in a lot of ways. The end of their relationship came when they had an out-of-control argument, and Hitch ended up punching her in the left eye. He was apologetic and took her to the hospital, but she never went to the police. This does suggest that under the right-provoking circumstances, Robert Hitch was capable of lashing out in a violent manner. Ian Antonio later told Woman's Day in an article, You'd expect him to be behind bars, wouldn't you? After the coroner determines he's behind our daughter's death, he killed Rachel, but he can't be charged with murder or manslaughter because he's already fought those charges and our law says you can't be charged with the same thing twice. So he's a free man. Sadly, until new evidence is uncovered, this will continue to be the case. If you do happen to have any new information that might be important to the case, we urge you to contact Crime Stoppers. You never know what small piece of information might be huge in bringing justice for Rachel for once and for all. Our thoughts go out to the Antonio family. We wish that Rachel was able to grow up and reach her full potential. Thank you for listening to the True Crime Sisters podcast. And until next time, please stay safe.